Welcome to Massive Damage Adventures, a one-shot actual play role-playing game podcast. My name is Merrick Moyer. I'm the Dungeon Master, Storyteller, Lore Master, and All-Around Host. Every month, I run a one-shot using a different system, pulling in a different cast of players. An extra special thank you to Hayden Lister for letting us use his song Rediscovery as our intro. Check out more of his music at ReverbNation.com slash Hayden Lister. H-A-Y-D-E-N-L-I-S-T-E-R. Also, please rate and subscribe and follow us on Twitter at SkyhammerK and on Instagram at SkyhammerPress. If you want to run your own games and need a few ideas, check out our Roll D4 adventure prompts on social media. And if you pledge a dollar a month at patreon.com slash skyhammerpress, you get four full adventure seeds on every Roll D4 adventure. Today I'm speaking with Sean K. Reynolds of Monty Cook Games, designer of many things in many systems. And uh, Sean, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, you posted on Twitter that you wanted to speak about three books that Monty Cook Games is working on right now. So we have Godforsaken, which is out as of today of this recording for the That's general right. public. Um, Tolis, which I'm sorry, I know that I should be saying Tolis. Hey, say it any way you want. It's your game. <laughs> Third RPG book I ever bought. Wow. Yeah, I actually got this before I got the monster manual. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I always I always pronounced it Tolis. Uh, and then, of course, Claim the Sky, which is on Kickstarter right now. Right. So, um, where do you want to start? What do you want to talk about first? Uh, well, let's start with Godforsaken, because it's out. It is out as of today. Yeah. Um, that's our fourth genre book that we funded from a Kickstarter last year. The first one was sci-fi. The second one was horror, which was by me. The third one was uh, about uh, fairy tales and mental illness by my friend and co-worker, Shauna Germain. And the last one is Godforsaken by myself and Monty Cook. And basically, Cypher System, we think it's a really strong system for handling just about any sort of genre. Uh, but Godforsaken is going in-depth on fantasy campaigns and advice for additional stuff to do when you're playing fantasy or running a fantasy game with the Cypher System. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen Cypher used for a little bit of fantasy before in like The Strange, The Core Book, and Gods of the Fall, which we played on the podcast one time. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you think Godforsaken does differently than uh, these other ones that you've already done? Well, for The Strange, you were kind of jumping from reality to reality, and some of those are sci-fi and some of those are fantasy. And so you might be in a world for a while that has fantasy rules, but Godforsaken is really talking about you want to run an actual fantasy campaign that's more than just a one-shot or just a short arc. And so there are things to consider about, like, uh, do you want to use an existing campaign world? Uh, if you build your own campaign world, how much magic is present? Do people know about magic? Uh, what role do the gods have? Like all these background sort of stuff 
that are important that have repercussions in the campaign and in the game mechanics that you decide to use. Um, and another thing is that Godforsaken gives you a detailed list of fantasy type of equipment. Uh, the CSR has some short lists of stuff and examples of armor and weapons, but for Godforsaken, we wanted to go all in in a standard medieval fantasy sort of, all right, you've got chain mail and here's crossbows and here's rope and here's grappling hooks and all those sort of things so that you have all that information for you. Um, you do a bunch of new magic items, uh, both ciphers and artifacts, and we talk about reflavoring uh, the kind of techie-sounding ciphers from the Cypher System rulebook. For example, there's a cipher called a chemical factory. Well, in a fantasy game, you wouldn't say, oh, it is a chemical factory that I have found. <laughs> um, and depending on what level of whimsy the campaign has, it might be like, oh, it's an alchemical onion, or it's a potion of many wonders or something. It's so uh, it's, it's all about giving you extra pieces for your fantasy toolbox. Mm-hmm. So was there any like particular magic item, creature, or like cipher system ability that you personally were like really excited to get into Godforsaken? Oh yes. Um so when I was writing that, uh Avengers Endgame had just come out. Okay. And spoilers, but you know, that's where Captain America picks up Thor's hammer, which is something that we knew. I like just those got been... kills again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Like, if you're familiar with the comics, you know that Captain America is a worthy wielder of Mjolnir. And so when they did that in the movies, you're like, yes, okay, finally, that's a thing. Um, and I wanted character players to be able to play a character like Thor in the Cypher system. And so I built a focus called Wields an Enchanted Weapon. And mm-hmm. it's literally like, okay, you have this magic weapon. You're attuned to it. You always know where it is. It'll throw and return to you. Uh, you can charge it up with energy. And what type of energy that is depends on the background, background of your character. If you're doing a Thor-type character, obviously it'd be lightning. Um, if you wanted to do a more fire-oriented character, it'd be fire, that sort of thing. But being able to create a Thor or Captain America using the only sort of character in the Cypher system was just really, really fun. Um, and actually, a couple of weeks ago, I did a one-shot superhero game uh, for mm-hmm. the MCG team. And one of the pregens I built for that was based on Thor. And even though it was a supers game, I just used that ability or that focus to create the Thor analog character. Um, I don't know, it's just really fun. I like translating stuff from one game to another, um, which is why I had a fun time working on Arcanum of the Agents, translating Numenera stuff to 50 DD. Uh, been working on Talos for about the last six months, and Bruce and I have been converting... Uh, 3e D&D stuff to 5e D&D yeah. and to Cypher System. Uh, and meanwhile, also playing an Invisible Sun game. So we're kind of juggling four different game <laughs> systems in our head. We're, we'll occasionally have you know mistakes like, oh, I need to make a speed defense roll. Wait, that's Cypher System and we're playing mm-hmm. Invisible Sun. Uh, I make a dodge mm-hmm. roll. Okay. It's, yeah. it's hard to, to keep all the terms. Mean, we all know that we're talking about making a dodge defense, but getting the terms right, there's a bit of bleed. And our editor occasionally will be like, yeah. This is a 5e term. Did you mean to say this in the separate system book? No, please fix it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, that leads into a question from one of my players that I was really excited to ask you about. A weaver in an Invisible Sun game of mine would like to know if Saru has heard of any rituals or means to create a new aggregate. Um, Saru does not know anything about that, but he is still a fairly inexperienced Vizsla. Like we played that campaign uh, for, for the sessions that were, that we streamed. 
Um, and then we had like a one shot at Gen Con. So he probably only spent around six crux. He hasn't earned a whole lot. Like they're still very close to being beginning characters. Um, but I would totally see that sort of research to be part of an uncover a secret character arc. Mm-hmm. The, so, the game that we're playing right now, I'm playing yeah. an apostate who is basically not really thumbing his nose at all the orders. But he's like, you know, you don't have to be in order to learn that stuff. So he's trying to find <laughs> like a desperate Vance who's willing to like compromise some of the rules and teach him a couple of Vance spells. Then he'll work on learning some weaving stuff. He's picking up spells to let him summon demons. So he's like, look, I can do all the stuff that you guys do. And I'm not even part of an order. Um, but the Vancean thing that he's learning is definitely going to be a character arc to uncover a secret. And so I would, I would put the same obligation of that for your weaver to do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I think I think you might be interested. It's it's very cool. We played the directed campaign and Saru shows up as an NPC a little bit and we actually ended up having him written in as a mentor. Um this oh, nice. weaver joined the Fellowship of Glass and I came up with a couple of NPCs and we went through a number of sessions. They became pretty good friends and then the player went off and started find found his own uh cell. Cool. Yeah. It's really cool. It's one of those weird cases where a, a character that starts out as a player character then becomes a non-player character and they evolve in different ways in everybody's campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, the previous narrative that we were running, uh, I was playing a Vance named Callahan and Callahan actually appears in the directed campaign as well. And actually, I think all four of our main PCs are in either the books or the directed campaign in some way. Uh, so it's my character Callahan, uh, Bruce's character... Um, I can picture the the bowler, but I can't get the name right now. Right. Um, well, that's that's Savian from oh, the the right. online yeah. game. See, it's it's really confusing because we have the current narrative that we're doing with one set of characters, the one that we did for the Raven once that you have once what you have, which is a different set of characters, and then our other home game that ran for two years, where I was playing right. Callahan, mm-hmm. uh, Shauna played a uh, character who revels in beauty. Susan played a maker named Shaylee who had a cupcake shop and Bruce's character. He, uh, he was the one of his focus, uh, his yeah, focus, not focus forte <laughs> was yeah. uh, delves into the newosphere. I'm getting the name wrong, but oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that one. So we have all these three different characters running around in my head and I'll see they all look like the player. It's, it's hard to keep them straight sometimes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's cool. I'm really glad that uh, Sarah made a little appearance there in, in your game. And it's kind of cool that he was... I mean, Sarah is basically the big Lebowski. Oh, he's really? He's supposed to be like... He's yeah. just really, really chill down for whatever people want. It's like, okay, you need help on this? That sounds great, man. And so if someone picks him as a mentor, he'd be like, yeah, dude, I can help you out with that. That sounds really <laughs> fun. Yeah. So that's nice. Uh, we, had a, we had a lovely story where... Um, there was a friendly rivalry with another cell and there was a spiders game tournament. Nice. It was very good. Nice. <laughs> um, there's, there's so much in everything that you just said that I want to pick apart. I'm like, Oh, there were tallest <laughs> things I want to talk about. There's invisible sun stuff, but we haven't finished talking about God forsaken. And I really want to hear a little bit more about, um, about the actual setting in the book right. of God. So, so each of these genre books, it's about two-thirds a toolkit and one-third a little mini setting. And for Godforsaken, Monty made a setting, a 
is also called Godforsaken. And the premise was that you live in a world where the good guys have won, like the gods have won. And so it is a safe place. Everyone's happy and prosperous. But there are portals to other worlds that the heroes can go to where the the reach of the gods does not extend that far. And so there's still a need for heroes, but you're kind of doing some world hopping, not in a planescape dimension hopping sort of way where you're dealing with other like conceptual planes, but literally like this is another fantasy world and we're strangers here. And there's a different you know, dynamic of the politics of power and different species and that sort of thing. And you do some adventures there and then you come back to your home realm and you're like, oh, whew, that was interesting. And each of those things also has a different mm-hmm. quirk. Like there's one of them where just the very air itself is just oppressive to you. Uh, like it makes you a little bit sick and weary. And so then you return to your home realm and that is gone. You're like, oh, this is so it's just, it's an opportunity to have a bit of weird, uh, almost like a negative condition applied to all the characters that they have to overcome or just suffer through. Uh, and that makes the adventures in that realm a little more interesting and challenging because you're not just having a regular fantasy hero sort of situation. You are fantasy heroes who are debilitated in some way and trying to overcome with these struggles. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting too, because like a lot of Monty Cook games, games, uh, there's a lot of focus put on player choice because all of that stuff is really upfront. It's, it's explained in the setting. The characters know that and they get to choose their sort of, challenges or level of difficulty and i mean i think you answered what i was going to ask which was what did you want to accomplish with it and uh, with this design of the setting and more specifically what do you think is the benefit to parties starting off in paradise and then going to these difficult things do you think there's any more nuance there well first of all there's a reason why each of these other realms has these negative effects on your character I'm not going to say what it is because it's a spoiler for for the setting. Uh, but one, the GM will know it, and if the players ever figure out, they'll be like, "Oh, that totally makes sense because it's this here and that there." Um, Monty I'm happy likes I didn't to put... blurt it out. This <laughs> was in my head right there. Monty likes to put secrets in his games for people to discover, and whether like they discover that there is a secret and they solve it, or whether they just discover there's a secret and always leave it as an enigma, that's just something we do for Numenera. Like we have not explained what the previous eight worlds were or what sort of creatures they were. We hinted a couple of things, but mostly leave that in the hands of the GM. Um, But in terms of starting from place of paradise, really it makes certain kind of journeys a lot more heroic. Like if you look at, the hero's journey by Joseph Campbell, you have a regular person who starts at home and they go on a journey and they encounter a mentor and they have conflict and they suffer loss. And then they eventually overcome the main struggle and return home again. And like in having a city game, city-based game like Talos, you have a character that says, this is my home and this is my safe place. and I can go out and do adventures and I can come home. I mean, there's, there's something very epic about that. And whether it's like, World War II scenario where you're going to go and fight the Nazis, and then when you're done, you get to go back home and you are safe. That's humans need downtime. We need time to rest mm-hmm. and recover from things. And it's really hard psychologically for us to always be like, oh, tension, 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 whether you're dealing with a battle or even a stressful situation or watching a horror movie. It's all about peaks and valleys and getting beats and stuff. And so I think 
when you allow your characters that, it allows the player to kind of put themselves into the character and say, all right, I have gone and done this heroic thing. I'm going to come home and recuperate. I might have a family. I might have a business. I might have something else that is just a normal part of life that I can enjoy before I have to go and do mm-hmm. heroics again. It's kind of like the, the Hobbits you know, going on to help de- destroy the ring. Like They're like, you know, the Shire, doing it for the Shire. Yeah. Frodo and Sam at the end are like, we have to do it for the Shire. Like we, The Shire will be protected because if we don't, Sauron will just rule the earth and everything that we hold dear will be destroyed. And so giving the characters the opportunity to see that safetyness and that that presence where they can just say, I'm home and this is what I've been fighting for. I think that's a strong emotional beat. Mm-hmm. And two things there with people, humans not being able to handle tension, tension, tension. Um, we're in a global pandemic. So anybody listening, remember, take a break, enjoy yourself, work, pay attention to your mental health. Right. Um, and... I think it's also very interesting that uh, it's set up that way so that you have this area of safety. And me, as a game master, I just want to play with that. And I want to say, how comfortable are you in safety? Do you want to change safety? Because uh, although the sort of core assumption is go out and adventure, and the, and the book says, you know, there's not much that you might be doing here um in the realm of uh the six gods five no there was five um but i personally would start putting in themes of like you know uh authoritarianism or or uh conformity and reasons why adventuring type characters wouldn't feel comfortable in paradise and then upheaval and change in the world. And I think, you know, that's interesting. I was going to say that's interesting because they're the fantasy tropes of you are a heroic character is going to go and slay the monster or slay the big bad overlord. That is, that is a power fantasy. There are things that you can't just solve by killing the bad guy. Mm-hmm. There are things like systemic racism or, you know, general misogyny and like uh, inequal opportunities and poverty and things like that, that you can't just run up and stab it and it's done. So it comes a question of, are these characters running off to deal with these kill the bad guy problems because they don't have the tools to fix what's actually wrong in their home realm? Ooh. There's, there's a lot of meaty story there. I think it'd be a fun campaign. Okay, so let's move on. Um, let's talk a little bit about Tolis since it's coming out next. Uh, yeah, we have a few smaller things in the middle, but uh, Tolis is in layout now. Uh, it is huge, huge book. Um, the challenging thing for this is that we're doing a fifth edition conversion and a cipher system conversion. And just taking one chapter, for example, the organization's chapter, it talks about the heads of all the noble houses and the head of this criminal crime family and the head of the city watch. And so all those characters get stat blocks. In fifth edition, stat blocks take half a page or a, fa- a page. Cypher system, you can sum up even a powerful character in maybe three or four lines. And so yeah. you don't want our graphic designer, Bear, to have to lay out the entire book 
tax system and then lay it out all again for 5e that's like a two i mean that's over a thousand pages in a short period of time so what we try to do is make each chapter similar as possible and so what we ended up doing is we made the running text system neutral the rule stuff will be handled in callouts in the margin so when it gets to oh this is lord kirstol delamothan and it'll have a little call out to the margin and say in Cypher System, the Cypher System book will have its own callouts, and the 5e book will have its own callouts. So you won't see both stats, but they are there in the document that Bear, our art director, is using to create this. And so what he's going to do is he's laying out the chapter, and then when you go to create the PDF to go to the printer, we say, turn off all the Cypher System stuff so only the 5e is visible, and then vice versa. Yeah. That means that most of the book is going to be identical page by page. And there will be some places where we might have the cipher system page might be three quarters of a page. And so we'll have to put a little extra art there or where the 5e page is a little short. And so we have a little bit of filler art there, but most of the book is page by page is covering the same concepts. The same page number references are going to be there. It gets a little weird in the magic item section and the monster section. Um, but Bruce and I work really hard just to make this a system neutral book that has 5e and CSR callouts in it. Um, there's a lot of extra work up on the front end, but it means that Bear can actually do this job in a normal amount of time instead of taking twice as long. And Monty, when we started working on Talus, said, I just want you guys to know that even back in third edition, we learned that Talus takes twice as long as what you expect it will take. Whether that's <laughs> writing it, laying it out, getting art done, proofing it, it just takes twice as long. So Bruce and I put in that extra effort in the design phase, in the development phase, so now Bear is only going to have to take about one and a half times as long to lay it out instead of doing a double. But it's it's really fun project in that I played in two different Tallest games back mm-hmm. when before it was even a book. And I when the book came out, I, I didn't read it. I skimmed parts of it just to look for some of the stuff that I knew. But there was stuff in this book that I had never seen before. And some of that was things that the, the other party had taken care of. And some of it was mm-hmm. just stuff that neither of us had taken care of. And Monty had laid in place for, for other DMs to use. Um, so it's fun for me to see the behind the scenes of some of the stuff that were encounters that I played through. And things that happened because of me or one of our other characters. I'm like, oh, that's when we did this. Actually mm-hmm. running a tallest game as my home game right now with my girlfriend, her son and a couple of my friends. And so I'm filling in stuff from adventures that I played through 15 years ago, using details that happened live in our campaign from Monty's mouth. that didn't end up in the book <laughs> flavor of what we're doing. We're having a really good time. Actually at the yeah. point now um, where it's a necropolis in the city and there's this lake in the middle of it that's basically a preserve uh, warded by these powerful magic stones that keep the undead and the demons out. But for 24 hours every year, those fail. And so the two druids who live there are asking for help. And so our PCs have just shown up to fight demons and undead for 24 hours and hopefully keep the island from getting overrun. So that's where we are right now. Excellent. Uh, I'm also running a Tolis home game right now. Uh, and it's actually set 20 years time skip after our first campaign, which lasted 10 years real time. Oh, nice. And so uh, same sort of thing, actually, where we opened up the campaign and uh, Andak the Druid is gone. Oh. Uh, there are reasons. 
and uh, the players haven't found out that found that out yet. But his new apprentice was taking care of the island on her own, and the stones were failing. Ah, yeah, cool. it was really fun. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the the production going into this book, which is like you said, hundreds of pages, seven hundred pages, um, is incredible, and. Uh, the I'm so excited to see the new art that's coming out, like the things that have been shared through the Kickstarter backer updates have been incredible. Um, I wanted to know a little bit about some of the new writing that might have gone in. Did you find that changing from third edition 3.5 uh, to Cypher or fifth edition sort of triggered any rewrites into the world? A little bit, um, and but it's mostly confined to rulesy sort of stuff. Uh, like for example, third edition has prestige classes, and yeah. those are things that you get after your character has advanced a little bit, and then it's a new class you get multi-class into. Five E doesn't have that, mm-hmm. so what we ended up doing was how do I play some of those? Chigma? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so we ended up converting some of those to uh, subclasses for Five E. Okay. So you can have Knights of the Cord as your, like, I'm a bard. I want to be a Knight of the Cord. Um, Shigma was one where we're like, you know, that could be a lot of different things, but it's mainly an NPC sort of thing. So we're just going to convert those abilities and say, all right, GM, if you want your NPC to be a Shigma, start giving the, them these abilities in order until you have them where you want them to be. And presumably you could do the same thing for a PC. If your PC wants to go all, yeah. all in on being undead or and coming back from the dead, you could start granting that stuff. Um, and for the cipher system, uh, it's a similar sort of take where we've got different foci and Bruce converted some of those uh, prestige classes into foci. So you can go into uh, Knights of the Pale or Keepers of the Veil as your focus. Uh, but it's not called who is a Knight of the Pale or who is a Keeper of the Veil. There's it's something like who wars <laughs> against the Pale or something like that. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of those are just general abilities as well. It's just like, oh, you need Detect Evil as an ability for Cypher System. All right, well, we'll make that. Right. Mm-hmm. For a lot of the things where 5e and Cypher System are actually very flexible when it comes to NPC stuff nowadays. So many characters in the book would be like, oh, this is a 5th level commoner, or this is an 8th level commoner, or I'm a 5th level warrior. In 5e, you would just say, oh, this character has commoner stats, or this character has mm-hmm. guard stats, or this character has veteran stats. And so a lot of those just, you don't need to go and give a full stat block for these characters. And for Cypher yeah. System, likewise, this is a level two person, level four for money, mag- money making, or this is a level three guard attacks as level four. Nice. So that yeah. was m- much of the book was going through and finding all those rules, specific details flagging them like i mostly did the 5e conversion and bruce mostly did the the cypher system conversion so in many cases i would go through the chapter first and i would just flag something that this is a a third edition rule and we would i would make a call out for the 5e version and then leave a placeholder call out for bruce to take care of the cypher system version so there's a lot of like shocking green and bright pink highlighted (laughs) sections so we would not miss one of these things like oh crap we left in a third edition reference to this sort of thing um (laughs) Third edition handles that you can just take a feat to craft potions and scrolls. 
Yeah. And buying and selling magic items is a common thing. And Talos is like built on that idea. 5e, very much not the same way. It's kind of got a more rarer sort of mentality. So we had to go and put in little rules of you can buy and sell potions and scrolls for this amount. Mm-hmm. You can get low-level magic items for this amount because this is how common these things are with adventurers going in and out of the dungeon. Cypher system, even more so because not only do they not have a, a built-in mechanism for making magic items, but they use price categories instead of gold piece values. So everything in the game has a gold piece value, but Bruce had to go and do a conversion to say, all right, if you're still using price categories and you're running a fantasy game, this is what price categories mean. This is about what a potion is. This is what a scroll is. So it was really kind of a meta level of taking the three E rules and saying, how can we make this fit without rebuilding and redesigning third edition for the Cypher system or for 5e? Mm-hmm. We could have made we could have made some sort of weird rule where for 5e, this is a subclass that you can take, but you can't take it until X level. And we're like, you know what? 5e doesn't have prestige classes. We don't need to put a 5e prestige. We don't need to make a prestige class rule for 5e. We're just going to let people get in on these subclasses like you do for anything else. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you could have used the multi-classing rules or something like that, but... I think it makes sense to make it more open and accessible that way and, and in theme. Yeah. There's um, a lot of interesting challenges. Cause I mean, we're talking 20 years of game design changes and history. There. Right. Uh, was there anything from the original book that maybe won't make it into the uh, new edition? Like uh, something that just had to be left behind. No, even there, there are a couple of things that were like problematic in the text that are kind of like we might flag as a PG-13 or an R sort of topic, um, but we just called that out. Like there is one of the early adventures is there's a young woman and she's being attacked and it turns out that somebody wants to kill her because she's pregnant and she's going to give birth to this destined child. We flag it right away. We're like, hey, you know what? A lot of players have a problem with threats against people who are pregnant. If that is the case, here's how you change that. Mm. Try to be more aware of people's sensitivity for for certain things. Uh, One of the things we also uh, worked on was D&D. Third edition has very stereotypical views of creatures of what they call other races, um, particularly half-orcs. And we with 20 years of additional you know, hindsight, we decided to rewrite how we present the half-orcs in the game and point out that, hey, just because you're half-orc or just because you're an orc doesn't mean you're inherently savage, you're not inherently a monster, you're not inherently evil. Um, and not only because, I mean, there's a horrible history of fantasy races being used to represent real earth races and we didn't want to perpetuate that sort of racism but in the 5e player sandbook dark elf is a player character option yeah we didn't we didn't want to say hey guess what all dark elves are evil and the person who's really excited about playing a dark elf pc is just like uh, but my character's not you have that you have to have that just just a word in the loophole um mm-hmm. so we tried to go and frame it in a way that people would still be able to create the characters that they want to play but as you said earlier, we give them that that choice. It's like, if you choose to play a Dark Elf character, you're going to have a hard time because Dark Elves are actually illegal in the city. And that's because this the settlement of Dark Elves underneath the city, they are evil. We say, not, el darker, not, el, ugh, not all Dark Elves are evil, 
but this is a city of evil dark elves. And so mm-hmm. their influence on the city makes the people of Talos know, like, hey, we don't want these people around. So if you're going to play a dark elf PC, you could say, no, I'm from far away. I'm not like part of these jerks. And you're still going to deal with prejudice. But we point out saying, you're going to have prejudice. If you don't want to deal with that as your character, maybe play a different character. Mm. It's a it's a controversial sort of thing, and it's it's a definitely a nuanced sort of take that you have to do for this, because um, a lot of people don't want to deal with racism in a fantasy game, yeah. and that's totally understandable. I actually have um, another question for my players that kind of touches on that. So, uh, one of the players wanted to know what uh, what are your preferred tools for player safety and why. Uh, well, I did write a uh, PDF called Consent in Gaming with uh, my friend Shauna. Thank you. And that arose from me. I was working on Stay Alive, my horror supplement. <clears throat> and there was a section in that that was just about consent, talking about how there is good scary and there's bad scary. And having read through the book uh, as part of his creative director review, Monty said, you know, this probably just needs to be its own separate thing. And so we made it its own PDF and we took it out of stay alive, made it free for everybody. And I wrote some additional content for stay alive. Um, in stay alive, there is a checklist for various topics. And so you can just hand out this checklist to your players and say, is there anything here that you are iffy on? Is there anything here that is a hard no for you? Um, I'm also fortunate in that the people that I game with are people that I know very well. I know their preferences. Some of them I've been gaming with for over 20 years. Um, but even so, it's good to check in with these sort of things. Uh, for Monty's Invisible Sun game that we started uh, about eight months ago, it was right before the pandemic, he used the checklist from Consent and Gaming to say, hey, is there anything that you are not comfortable with at the table? And and these are people that you know we've done complete campaigns with. We just wanted to make sure. Um, and one of the things I marked was romantic dialogue. It's like, really, you have a problem with romantic dialogue? I'm like, personally, Monty, I would have a hard time like reading a romantic poem to you representing an NPC. That would make me feel strange because you are my friend and you know, we're both we're both men and I'm a heterosexual man. And I assume that he is too. And so it just it would it would be a weird situation for me to be reading a love poem to Monty. That's really what it is. Mm-hmm. I don't have any objection to love poems in general, but I was just like, I don't want to do that. So he's like, oh, I totally makes sense. Um, oh, Consent to Gaming, that's one obviously I, I recommend because I wrote it. Um, I'm also a big fan of the X card. There are a lot of other safety tools out there that I'm not particularly familiar with. Um, but I mean, whatever works for your group, everybody's group is going to be different. Some people are going to want a checklist. Some people are going to want to have a private dialogue. Some people might just want to have an anonymous note. Um, every mm-hmm. group is different and no solution is going to work for all of them. I believe checking in is is the best way, whether you do it directly or indirectly in whatever way is comfortable for the people that you're playing with. It's well said. Um, so jumping back a little bit to Tolis, um, there is actually in the previous printing a full page uh, discussion on uh, gender and same-sex relationships in there. Hmm? Um, taking into account all that we just discussed about uh, the change 
in how we portray those things in our games over the last 20 years. Did that change a lot? Or like, how did that evolve? I'm glad you brought that up because I had forgotten about that in the context of our earlier discussion. Yeah, that did get a bit of a tune-up. Um, mostly just because it talks about, that section talks about, this is what it's like to be a man in Tallis. This is what it's like to be a woman in Tallis. This is how men dress. This is how women dress. I added a section that says, if you are some other gender, you might create your own style. You might draw from men's fashion. You might draw from women's fashion. You might do your own thing. Um, we wanted it people who are non-binary or not particularly uh, strongly toward male or female uh, to be comfortable in creating a character and know that in this very cosmopolitan city, people have choices. Like in a world where there are literally half orcs and lizard folk and you know elves and dwarves and humans running around, someone who is non-binary is normal. It's common, common mm-hmm. enough. Um, there was one bit where in the 3E book it said that Dwarves still think that homosexuality is strange. Gone. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Cause I remember reading that, um, you know, 15 ish years ago when I first got this book and it really stuck with me and not, not because I thought that it was wrong because I didn't have the, the experiences or the, or the language to express that yet, but it stuck with me as, um, something interesting that I hadn't quite read before. And it was that it was uh, considered a mild form of madness. Yeah. And I, again, 15 years have passed and we, meaning everybody at MCG, we are very queer friendly. We try to be allies. Mm-hmm. At least two or three members of the team are LGBTQIA+. Um, so we're trying to be very sensitive to people's, sexual orientation and their feelings and their perspective and any biases that they've experienced as part of their life. And so when I hit that line, I sent Monty a message saying, this is kind of a problem. Do you want to tone this down? He said, how about we just take it out? Cool. I love it. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy supporting your company. And I appreciate the values that you as a team bring to the industry. Thank you. We were, I mean, nobody's perfect. But yeah, we try really hard to do do right by people. Cool. Um, so, anything else you wanted to talk about, Tolus, or should we head to head to the sky, as it were? Uh, I think we're done with Tolus for now, but I'll probably remember something that we can edit back in. Yeah. Okay. So, claim the sky, superheroes. Um, when the uh, your best game ever Kickstarter went out and the genre book started going there was so much call for a dedicated superhero book and we didn't get there and now we have it coming out so um i guess my first question is why why now let me direct a question back to you are you asking why wasn't it part of the previous kickstarter or why is it specifically coming out now Mm, i guess why wasn't it part of the the original Kickstarter first. All right. So totally fair question. And uh, I think it's two parts of the answer. One, there are four designers in MCG. And that Kickstarter funded your best game ever, which was mostly Monty and, and Shauna. And then for each of those four genre books, we had one primary design team member as the author. Um, so we didn't have a fifth design team member to write supers on that. 
um, we're all just very excited on like, if you had one cool book that you really wanted to do, what would it be? And Bruce was like, I want to do sci-fi. I want to do horror. I want to do fairy tales. I want to do fantasy. Um, who knows if that Kickstarter had done another hundred thousand dollars and we were just like, uh, we need to fill in another book, you know, supers might've been an option for that. Um, as to why now, uh, the time seems right. And we all have such a love of superheroes as a, as a genre. Um, Monty has done superhero stuff for so long. He's been a comics fan. He and Bruce used to go to comic stores together. I was really into comics when I was a teenager. Um, I have done alternative superheroes rules. I played the hell out of the Marvel superheroes adventure game. Um, I did a one shot superheroes game using Cypher system for the team just a few weeks ago. Uh, it's fun. I mean, the fact that the Marvel cinematic universe is just so big and everybody knows what comics are. It's just a really good opportunity for us as well, but supers are just fun. And I'm yeah. so looking forward to being able to just flip through, you know, all these old comics and say, Oh, mm -hmm. can we create this character in the cipher system? No. Well then let's make it so you can. What uh -huh. about this character? Awesome. What about this? How do you handle this aspect? How does magic and technology and aliens mix and all this sort of stuff? So that's why we're doing the Heroes of the Cypher System Kickstarter to create Claim the Sky, which is your genre book for big cinematic type superhero stuff. Um, there are also two other books that come with it that are, have either funded or have, are about to be funded. Uh, one of them is First Responders. And we're all dealing with a pandemic. So we... I think everybody who is aware that COVID is a threat is aware that people on the front line of dealing with the pandemic, nurses and doctors and, and EMTs and stuff, they are in a hard place and they are doing some heroic things to save lives. And we thought it'd be really interesting to have the opportunity to play that sort of character in a role-playing game, but not in a, uh, as I had said for the Godforsaken setting, like, you can't just punch out a virus. You got to come up with yeah. a solution for it. If there's a building that's on fire, you just can't go and punch the fire. Uh, there's 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 different solutions for it. And so we wanted to create a game and kind of a mini setting where, hey, we're going to have some sort of threat, and that threat might be uh, a flood or a tornado or a building fire or a pandemic, and we're going to need people who have different sort of specializations to deal with that. And this will have rules for that. This will have rules for. Uh, what sort of character types and stuff you can play. We have a, an article that's either on Kickstarter itself or on the website. Uh, I think we put it to the Kickstarter and then it goes to the website. Uh, explaining in detail what First Responders is all about. It's also uh, a supplement for anything in the Cypher system. So if you wanted to have a situation where, oh, the city is on fire in your fantasy game, here's a whole bunch of rules for dealing with putting out fires with, with characters, or there's an alien invasion and their spacecraft has crashed into a building and you need to evacuate this building. You can use it with the superhero book. Um, if there's a zombie outbreak from a, a viral sort of zombie plague, like uh, the walking dead on one side, yes, you have to go and shoot zombies to kill them on the other side. What can we do to stop this plague? And so using this as a, a general source book for a cyber system was also our goal. And then the third book is The Origin, which is more of a low-key super sort of game. Kind of compared to more like season one of that show Heroes from the, the early mm -hmm. 2000s, where they're like heroes have just started to appear. And you're like a small group of people. You don't know how many other heroes there are. 
or how many other supers there are. There are mysterious government organizations or corporations that are looking to either exploit their powers, take advantage of their powers, duplicate their powers, or just eradicate them as a threat. So it's kind of a more low-key, uh, there's surveillance and that sort of thing going on. So it's a different field than the setting in Claim the Sky, which is very much like superheroes have been around since World War II. And this <laughs> is the superhero who literally, you know, punched out Hitler. And now everybody knows that supers exist. And do I wear a cape or not? And so it's a very different feel than the Origins book. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the Kickstarter we're doing right now. I'm super excited to work on it. Uh, we're, we're shuffled things around in our product schedule. We just had our design meeting yesterday. And once I finish my current project, which is a Numenera project called Vertices, um, I'm going to start working on my parts of Claim the Sky. And Monty is like, basically, I just need you to go through all these typical superhero archetypes and <laughs> figure out if we can build that in Cypher system. And if not, make it work. It's like, all right, so we need the billionaire who is the knight and the big, strong person who is this and the person who builds the armor and the person who has bug powers and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff that I'm going to be working on for Claim the Sky. That's really exciting. I mean, you get to just make a whole bunch of characters for a while. Yes. <laughs> and actually, because uh, I trained to be a teacher, really it's me showing people how to make their own characters like that. Because it's mm-hmm. one thing to say, here's how you build Spider-Man. It's another thing to say, here's how you build a character who has bug powers. And even looking at something like uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, you can have five different versions of Spider-Man that have different sort yeah. of feels and different specific powers. And so like, it'll be really a a mini toolkit for building your own kind of spider-man here's a mini toolkit for building your own kind of batman like what aspect of batman do you want to focus on what aspect of spider-man do you want to focus on mm-hmm. and of course for anybody listening who hasn't already backed the kickstarter i will put the link in the show notes go back it uh because we want to get you up to that really high number and also get the next book the well not necessarily the next book but the book that has been announced the bestiary for the cypher system yes too. Yeah, that'll be a fun one. I hope we get to that. Um, this Kickstarter has done better than we expected, um, mainly in that most Kickstarters have like an initial spike and then they plateau and then they kind of bump up at the end. This one hit that spike really, really fast and kind of ended up like, if you consider like the, the back of an Apatosaurus or a Brontosaurus, it's like the tail and then the flat back and then the long neck. Well, we ended up getting like a very sharp tail and then it's flattened up here. Um, so we'll see how much that neck is going to be. But uh, yeah, we could definitely use mm-hmm. a Cypher System bestiary that has tons of creatures that we've never seen before in the Cypher System. There are so many just from myth and fantasy and legend that we would love to present in Cypher System for the first time. Cool. So um, I'll be honest, I wasn't as excited for first responders as I am for Claim the Sky, but your pitch about... Uh, the tools that you can use to apply to other Cypher sister games has really sold me on that. I'm very interested in that right now. And so are we going to expect the same sort of format as the other genre books where it's um, tools, 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 and then the setting? I'm not sure. I'm like, I haven't seen the outline for the book yet, but... I know it will have tools in a setting. I'm just not sure if it's going to have the same proportions. Also, I think it's going to be a smaller book. Like the other genre books Mm -hmm. have been 224 pages. This might be 144. And so we'll have a a different balance of things. Um, Probably largely because in this book, you're not going to need a lot of room to come up with new powers. 
because right. you're going to be dealing with regular people and a lot of that stuff can be handled with the cipher system rules already uh we have talked about it will probably be a lot of specialty equipment it's like hey we're going to need stats mm -hmm. for what firefighter gear is and what an emt's like regular you know medical kit that they carry around what is in that what can you do with that um so it'll be it'll be interesting and that'll be mostly uh monty and shauna uh shauna actually uh, was a firefighter for a while, so she has a lot of first-hand mm -hmm. experience. And uh, our, Tammy, uh, another one of our employees who is person who runs our warehouse and handles accounting and uh, is our project manager now, she was a, I believe she was a dispatcher for mm. some aspect of uh, first responder stuff. I can't remember which one. Um, but yeah, we've all these people have got just such a wild, crazy uh, bunch of resumes with all these background jobs. And by comparison, I... I say that I'm like one of the most boring people at the company because <laughs> really I went to college and then I started working at game companies and that's all I've done. And all these other people are like, oh, I was a firefighter. I lived in Ireland. I did this and that. I'm like, okay, I'm boring. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so first, first responders, uh, it'll be similar, but not identical. And one of the things that we did when we were working on the regular genre books is like Bruce did his first, but as the other authors started working on theirs, we said, you don't have to do it like that. We want your book to serve the needs of what it's doing. And so if your book doesn't look like Bruce's book, and if my book doesn't look like Shauna's book, that's totally fine. You've got to make each of these books the best they can be their own, their own little bubble. But again, they're not like, you know, completely isolated, like a pandemic bubble, but like we don't, <laughs> it's not a format that we have to follow. Okay. It's good. I mean, of course, right to the audience and right to the needs of the piece. Right. Um, okay. I've got a couple of specific questions for Claim the Sky, and then we've got a couple of other just fun questions from the players and so on. How are you doing on time? I'm good. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, so what is the core assumption in Claim the Sky as you are being a superhero? Are you going to be like an X-Man out of the gate? Or like you were saying heroes where you're really really low level um or is there yeah like like a almost a D, &D power curve where you're like oh i just kind of walked out of my small town and then up where where does the core sit oh in the cypher system, system rule book we suggest building superhero characters with three power shifts and we have rules for what power shifts are it could be like i have the dexterity power shift which means that anything involving dexterity sort of stuff i get an advantage or strength or damage or resilience or whatever. So three is a good way to building a nice roundabout or a nice, well-rounded hero. Uh, when I did my one shot supers, they're all playing like teenagers who are inspired by various members of the Avengers. They all had three power shifts and they were like superheroes just starting, starting out, but they're still definitely superheroes. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Charles Ryan was playing spider teen who is actually a 12-year-old pretending to be a teen, but he's like, I'm super excited about being Spider-Man. Yeah! <laughs> um, and he was ready to go and like punch a bad guy. He's like, oh, you know what? I'm not really good at fighting stuff. Like, dude, you have a power shift in strength and you have a power shift in agility. You add three points of damage to every single attack you make. And he's like, <laughs> oh, my punches do five points of damage. That's better than a gun. Okay, I'm going to hit the guy. Bam! You know? So... The, the default level of three power shifts is, is good for building, even at a tier one, a good above street level hero. You could play a Spider-Man with that, a young Spider-Man. Um, I want to make sure that we cover uh, 
points to do lower powered heroes for that. Like for example, what we did in my horror book, Stay Alive, where the setting is that you wake up and you've been turned into a vampire by somebody. Like literally you wake up in a room with four other people and you're like, what happened? There's a note that says, mm-hmm. hey, I'm a vampire. I turned you into vampires. Um, <laughs> and those vampires get power shifts and you can either assign them immediately or you can play out that first adventure and then assign them dynamically. They're like, oh, I try to open the door. I can't open the door. Oh, I'll use one of my power shifts for strength. There you go. And so now you're just having to be a strong vampire. Or I want to be the hypnotic vampire. So you put mm, one of your services in that. Um, so we can do the same thing with superheroes. We could say, all right, you get one power shift. And then at the end of this session, we're going to award you, along with your XP, another power shift. And then eventually you're third. And then you'd be up to what we consider on par for a starting superhero. Um, but you could also have a low-powered superhero game where, no, one power shift is all that you get, or two is all that you get. Mm-hmm. So there, there are different ways to do that. We're also going to have to address things like the Cypher System rulebook, we talk about difficulties above 10, because you can have uh, power shifts means that, oh, this is difficulty 15. Like, if you want to punch Galactus in the face, that's really, really hard, right? But it's doable. Mm-hmm. What if, like, are there difficulties above that? Like, what if you want to punch Ego, the living planet? What sort of <laughs> difficulty is that? Um, so there should be opportunities for having street-level heroes, Avengers-level heroes, and then cosmic-level heroes. Like, oh, we're going to have this Silver Surfer and this other character. Like, what can they do and what sort of foes can they deal with? So it's pretty scalable. Uh, Cypher System characters are, they start out pretty tough, and then they they level up to use it term that doesn't actually apply to Cypherism because your characters yeah. <laughs> don't level. Uh, but like a tier one character, I'd say it's probably about a level three D&D character. And then a tier six Cypherism character is probably maybe a level 15 mm-hmm. D&D character. So it's a, they cover a wide range of things, but you start out pretty tough and then get super tough, but not like, oh, I'm going to cast three wish spells per day sort of tough. Yeah. Um, so dealing with that in a, cypress, or in a superhero context is going to be an interesting and fun challenge, especially when you're dealing with a situation where you might have one character who is very, one character who's the one who can like punch out the Galactus and the other character is like, I've got a hundred different gizmos, mm-hmm. you know? So if you have, you know, Superman and Batman in the same group, how do you come up with a challenge for the team that's, effective against Superman, but also gives Batman something to do where he's not knocked out immediately. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of thinky stuff for supers to deal with. Mm-hmm. It actually reminds me of um, something in your best game ever when I think it was Monty specifically talking about trying to balance games and just how really impossible that idea is. And really you just wing it. Like. <laughs> I worked on Pathfinder for six years and the player base of Pathfinder, there are a lot of them who are really, really just hyper-focused on, well, is this balanced? Well, I can do X amount of damage with this character, but not with this character. So this character is not balanced against that one. I'm like, but it's not just about damage. Like you can maximize, you can have a fighter or a ranger or whatever who's maximizing their damage. You can also have a cleric who's maximizing how much they heal. Are those two classes balanced against each other? Mm-hmm. Like you can't, you can't, you don't have a metric for saying this person's damage per round is equivalent to the, what percentage of this character's healing per round, or this skill-based character's ability to do skill challenges over and over. Like you can't. It's not. It's not just math. There's more yeah. to it than math. Mm-hmm. And that's 
I think why pen and paper RPGs are so exciting, uh, particularly why I like to run games because I like to come up with those challenges and those stories that are going to engage every player and everything that they've built. Different characters are going to have different goals. Like uh, my girlfriend's son's character, his character is uh, interested in technology. So he's learned the machine smithing. And so he's learning how to make bombs and stuff, but he's basically a wizard. You could just mm-hmm. learn fireballs. Like, yeah, but I want to make bombs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to make infrared goggles so I can make smoke bombs and see through them. Whereas uh, my friend Josh is a player and he's kind of a face man. And his whole thing is they've just bought a house. They've just bought a mansion. He's going to create like a hero's guild. They're called the Order of the Rose. Mm-hmm. He's made, he spent money on getting insignias for everybody. He's like, his whole thing is I want to be a foundational presence in the setting where we are doing yeah. good. And people are like, oh, those are the good guys. So you can't balance those two things against each other with math. Mm-hmm. it's just who's having fun <laughs> are they both having fun and are they both feeling they have something to do each game then that's success yeah okay um one last question on claim the sky uh we also ran unmasked actually interesting i mentioned that we did um gods of the fall we did unmasked i'm running predation next saturday cool. <laughs> and then so we'll have covered all of the worlds of the cipher system finally uh, and then I guess we'll have to go into the genre books. Um, but uh, Unmasked uses the system for your your teen form and your mask form where you can change your descriptor and you don't have mm-hmm. a focus. Uh, is there going to be something similar for that for alter ego um, and super identities, you thinking? I... I would be surprised if we don't include something like that. I think it's important. Uh, I have a long string of tweets that I want to do talking about. I want to be able to cover this. I remember the being able to build this sort of character with the old Marvel game and and so on. Um, I don't think it'll be the way that Unmasked does it because Unmasked, that those rules are really deeply embedded in the setting that you're playing teenagers and you don't have a focus because you're just a regular teen and you're not like adult and able to do adult things. Uh, I think it was fine for what, for what that book was. Um, but expectation is that in the cipher system, every character has a type descriptor and a focus and how to handle our alter egos is going to be interesting. Uh, we mm-hmm. do have uh, one example of the focus uh, house at the moon where you're a normal person, but then you can like freak out and turn into a monster. That's one way of doing it. Um, but I'm looking forward to seeing how Monty uh, suggests we do it. Or he might just say, figure it out, Sean. How do you handle yeah. all three <laughs> characters? Because you have characters like Shazam that are, I mean, he's actually a bad example because he is a team when he, in his normal form. But like the Hulk, Bruce Banner, is just a regular genius in his normal form. But then he can become the Hulk and mm-hmm. do all these great things. Or we're talking about classic Thor where he turns into Donald Blake. Yeah, He's just a regular guy. Like, how do you handle that? Um, it's it's one of those interesting questions where the cipher system does give you a lot of options. Like maybe there's an XP expenditure option where you have an alter ego because having an alter ego means that bad guys have a hard time finding you. Like there are advantages mm-hmm. to having an alternate form that doesn't have power. There are also disadvantages as well. I don't know a lot, a lot of thought to be there, but yeah, I want to address that. Okay, cool. Uh, before we move on to, Random questions. Anything more that you want to say about Boundless or the origin, like the setting-wise? Teasers, maybe? Um, well, the best thing to do for those is uh, Monty's written up uh, a description of God's... Uh, uh, 
Monty's written up a description of Boundless setting as part of his general overview of Claim the Sky, and Bruce has an article about the origin that is either on the Kickstarter or uh, making its way to the Kickstarter very soon. Um, and I'd much rather not fumble their specific description. <laughs> I've heard more of Monty's uh, description of it, and it's it's really fun. Like he is again, he he loves comics. He loves the the golden age of comics and we're going to have something very similar where it's like yes there is a superhero who was around for fighting nazis and he's gone now uh, but now these other characters and so they're all recognized it'll it's a really fun thing but yeah read, read the kickstarter updates that's right to just people look at there you go okay so um we've covered a couple of these but we have a bunch uh, from players on the podcast who wanted to get your opinions on some things. Uh, first one's a big one. Someone who's very, very passionate about uh, the games. Uh, with Monty Cook Games creating and utilizing the Cypher system, it's been talked about how it should have been named the Foci system instead, as Foci are more interesting. Uh, and that actual ciphers don't always fit into the setting of some games. So as a developer, what are your thoughts on that? And um, what projects have you had trouble sort of integrating the idea of ciphers into? Interesting. Well, the cipher system name comes from ciphers, which were an aspect of Numenera, because Numenera came first. Mm -hmm. And... Monty put ciphers into Numenera because he wanted characters just to have the opportunity to try out different abilities that weren't necessarily part of their daily routine. Uh, in D&D, those are, you know, various little one-shot magic items like scrolls and potions. Um, the reason why he put the cipher limit into the game is because he's seen so many times that people get to 15th level and they'll have like that one potion that they found at second level. They're like, Oh, but I might need it next adventure. So I won't use yeah, it. I was like, yeah. no, use it. I'll give you more stuff. <laughs> you know, he wants you to use those things. Uh, and so in Numenera, he encourages you to use, you might have a, like a, a starting character might have a thing that lets you teleport a hundred feet, which is something that would be never part of a normal, you know, fifth edition D and D game. Um, that's just a one-off. Like, hey, if you can solve an encounter with a, a cipher that lets you teleport, great. Your next adventure, you're probably not going to have that teleportation cipher. You're going to have something that'll let you levitate or phase or catch on fire or whatever. Um, and so he loves the concept of ciphers. And so when they made the game, they called it the cipher system. Um, I think, I mean, the name of the game doesn't really matter what you're doing day to day. You can play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons without ever going into a dungeon or fighting a dragon. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in, um, in some aspect, the name doesn't really matter. But I, I see what they're saying about how the focus is really about what you're doing with your, your character is, is your unique aspect is your focus. Um, I don't necessarily agree that ciphers don't always have a place in the game, especially as in the revised cipher system rulebook we changed the assumption for ciphers and that the default is subtle ciphers. They're not physical mm -hmm. things. They're not gizmos. They're not potions. They are just first of inspiration, a bit of luck and an unexpected opportunity that comes up. And those can go into just about any game. Like, and even yeah. in the cipher system rule book, we talk, we break them down into here are manifest ciphers. These are physical things. These are subtle ciphers. These are not physical things. And then there's fantastic ciphers that might be physical or they might be subtle. And those are like the weird ones like, Oh, here's a heat ray or disintegrator ray. I think that lets you phase through a wall. Um, 
But even in a, a very mundane setting, you could use something like that. You just kind of have to reflavor it. Like, so if you get a cipher that says, oh, you can phase through a wall. Well, how about instead of phasing through a wall, you just happen to find a secret door or there's like a weak spot in the wall that just was wallpapered over and you can just push your way through that. Like you can use flavor text mm -hmm. to justify the mechanics of what it is. Like I'm getting through this wall or there's a secret door or somebody that started a tunnel out and then they got caught. They just kind of plastered it over. Um, focusing on subtle ciphers as the default instead of manifest ciphers. I think you can put that into just about any game, whether that's a Mission Impossible sort of game, you can have little gizmos or superhero game where you might have gizmos or blessings of the gods in a fantasy game or Lady Luck is smiling on you or even in something like the Bourne, uh, the Bourne trilogy or however many movies there are in the board. <laughs> yeah, say, I no. don't know anymore. Like, somewhere where like, he, the guy jumps out a window and go, flies through the air over an alley and lands in a different window. Clearly that is like, there's a cipher that is, you just perfectly execute something as if you'd rolled a natural 20. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be the gods. It doesn't need to be a gizmo. It just has to be like, the guy is just at the right time, in the right place. You just do it perfectly. Um, so I'm going to disagree slightly with the premise with that you, that ciphers don't always apply to every genre. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting way to look at it as well, because I had always considered, um, and now I've reframed it in my mind. I'd always considered, um, you know, subtle ciphers still as items, objects, or, or, um, uh, rewards. But the idea that they are, things that allow you to change the narrative kind of recast them in my mind as story points or fake points from other systems. Yeah, very much so. I mean, that's, that's a great way of putting it. And, and rather than being open-ended as story points and fake points are, like I know mm -hmm. a lot of people who have a hard time thinking on their feet of, Oh, yeah. I'm going to do a thing. What's the cool thing that I could do that would work here. But like, if you codify that as a cipher, like, Oh, I've got a perfect role. I've got a chance to recover some health. I've got like, I have the perfect tool for the job. Exactly. It doesn't, even have to, it doesn't even need to be like you're carrying that perfect tool. You're like, you just, you knock out a guard and the guard happens to have, oh, this guy's got like a Swiss army knife. I will take that. And there you go. Yeah. Um, I mean, that old chestnut about you get more creativity with some constraints. Yes, exactly. And you're going to let you, when you have that perfect role, you're like, I'm going to save that for when I reel it. This is a difficult thing. Oh, but I know that if I get a natural 20, I'll do it. Okay. Now is my time to use that perfect cipher, subtle cipher. Cool. All right, next question. Uh, using the cipher system style of sentence to describe yourself, what are you? A blank, blank, who blanks? Sure. Well, it's funny because uh, our business cards for MCG, there's a spot on the back for our character sentence. Oh, good. And uh, mine is, I am a charming extrovert who loves cats. Nice. Very good. Uh, yeah. Wait, wait. wait. Hold on, because I actually, I have that as part of my Facebook profile. So it's not Loves Cats. I think it's something a little cuter than that. <laughs> I go to my Facebook here. Aha, I am a detail-oriented cat fanatic who loves tabletop games. <laughs> More specific, very good. Um, okay. Uh, and you talked about this a little bit uh, with Invisible Sun and told us, uh, what are you playing or running these days? Uh, so in our ongoing Invisible Sun game, I'm playing an apostate named Madorge, who his goal is to just learn little bits of every kind of magic. Uh, he has uh, learned some of the Black Cube spells, 
which kind of bit him on the butt in our last game. We were in a haunted house that was created by the dark. And I'm like, oh, I know stuff about the dark. I'll call the black cube. And this black, like this, the sky was literally the dark. Like you normally you look up and you see the sky, but we're in this courtyard and you look up and it's the dark, capital D dark. I'm like, oh, call the black cube. And this hand comes down with a black cube in it. I'm like, oh, cool. And I reach for it. And this other hand tries to grab me <laughs> and would have just yoinked me off into the dark and destroyed my soul forever. I managed to dodge that, but currently I'm cut off from the dark. And now I'm like, all right, hmm, maybe the dark isn't such a good thing for me to be messing with. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he's also, uh, he's a very chatty sort of person, uh, and he's got a face shifting secret so he can just look like whoever he wants. It's funny because we had our previous Invisible Sun narrative and everybody had their characters that we played for two years and we were generally good guys. This one, we're kind of criminals. We're actually, we're not kind of criminals. We are criminals. Um, and so we're always doing heists and stuff. And Monty said, all right, I want you each to create a character who is one, a different order from the order that you played before. So I was, adva- was mm-hmm. advanced and now an apostate. And I want you to play a character who's got a different sort of uh, feel and outlook than your previous character. I'm very talkative. I'm very chatty. I love chatting with people. So my previous character, Callahan, as a challenge to myself, I specifically made him as bad at interacting with people. He has no mm-hmm. ranks in persuasion, intimidation, no points in interaction at all. Um, and so it was kind of ironic because his house kind of became the hub for where everybody would show up. They kept throwing all these parties. And so he's this horrible introvert and all these people are surrounding him at all times. <laughs> like, Oh, this is awful. But I did that as a challenge to myself. And now, so Madorish is the face man. He's the talky guy of the group. And so he's just got all this interaction. It lets me blather on as I do about everything. <laughs> um, so that's my, uh, that's the game I'm playing right now. And the game I'm running is Tallis for Cypher System, which is quasi a play test, but quasi we're just having fun actually originally was a Numenera game uh, that I was running for my friends. And when it time came time to start running some tallest playtests, I said, hey, how about we just take our Numenera characters and we'll roll them over to be Cypher System fantasy characters and we'll put you in Talos. And hmm. uh, they, I gave them the option of saying, do you want to be from the Ninth World? And you went through a portal and here everybody calls Numenera magic? Or do we just want to say we're building the same characters from the start, and we've always been fantasy characters. And I said, "Let's. We're always just fantasy characters, but it's the exact same characters, same type, descriptor, and focus, same personality." Um, so I've got my girlfriend's characters based on Wonder Woman. She's just like kind of quiet, but you know, really good at punching things. Her son is kind of based on Iron Man, and he's got uh, like uh, magical armor stuff that he moves on himself, and he makes bombs for some reason. <laughs> and then Josh is the talky sort of guy who uh, is the works for the commissar's men and so he's kind of like the criminal spy and then uh carol is the the fire priestess who accidentally gets people caught in her fire spells a lot (laughs) and do you find uh what are you more of a gm or a player you know when i was growing up i used to be the gm all the time because i love creating weird stories for people to interact with then starting I think around the time I, I came to TSR, I was kind of overwhelmed by like all these people who were working in the game industry and had been doing this for, for years. Like my first couple of days at TSR, I wandered around everybody's desk. I'm like, you're Roger Moore. I've read articles by you. You're Jeff Grubb. I've read books <laughs> by you. And they're like, yes, please stop pointing at us. Um, and <laughs> so I was kind of like being the, the shrinking violet. I'm like, well, I'm not going to try and run a game for these people because they're the experts. Yeah, so I started playing a lot more. Uh, nowadays, it's hard to say. I think it's it's kind of mixable. Like I will see stuff 
a movie or a TV show or a book. And I'm thinking, that'd be a really cool thing to incorporate into an adventure. And because I can only run, you know, one session every couple of weeks, most of that creativity ends up getting focused into whatever I'm writing for work. Um, so, I mean, I love GMing and I love playing. I would love to play more. It's hard to play in a pandemic. I mean, I, I totally get that reason with that, um, especially because I, I'm living with my girlfriend and her son and she's a school teacher. So she's got a lot of busy time also involving parenting meeting, meetings and her son is a gamer, but also he's a big sports fan. So there's usually like three or four different sports games every week that we have to set aside time for playing. So I don't mm -hmm. have as much time for gaming as you think being working from home like I do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's hard. Just, it's hard to say. I, I'll, I'll just I'll be weak and I'll say 50-50. <laughs> all good. Um, all right. Next question. What have you found makes a good tabletop RPG setting considering the, considering the differences between, say, a novel and a game setting? I think... I think it's really just about knowing your your players who's playing and knowing the sort of stuff that they like to play. Um, some people are going to want to play a kind of heisty, hijinks, sort of Ocean's Eleven sort of game. But some people are going to want some sort of serious drama where there's a lot of talking, whether that's something like The Crown or um, some, you know, a chatty sort of sitcom. Um, I like all sorts of stuff. Like, obviously, I read a lot of fantasy. I read sci-fi. I watch horror movies and, and, and sci-fi movies and fantasy stuff, read comic books. But there was a time when I was reading a lot of romance novels and uh, I have a science background, so I read, read a lot of science articles about stuff. I think you can get inspiration for your game, whether that's for your player or for a campaign element or a new monster or a spell from just about anything. Uh, mm -hmm. It's really just figure out cool ways to put those things together. And a lot of times it's just about reskinning an existing idea into an unfamiliar setup. Um, one of my favorite stories is uh, my brother-in-law, J.D. Weicker, used to run a Feng Shui game. And he once started a campaign where all the players were in Tijuana, a bar, and the door of the bar opens up and there's a ghost there. It's the ghost of the sheriff. And he <laughs> points at this man in the corner and says, avenge my death, and then disappears. And the guy just goes white. And it turns out that that man in the corner is the son of the sheriff who has died. And so they end up playing this campaign over like three or four months. And there's like this betrayal and the, the sheriff's brother has, is like courting the sheriff's wife. And the son is like wishy-washy and all this sort of stuff. And they end up like having this big resolution and all these people die. And in the very last session, all this stuff is going on. And then JD finishes the session and says, and that is the story of Hamlet. Ah, <laughs> that's great. So just like if you take something out of its original context and just slap it in a different, like you would never think, oh, mm -hmm. I'm going to have, you know, this noble dynasty, you change the nobles into the sheriff and you change yeah, the yeah. setting from this, you know, European thing to Tijuana, totally different feel. You're not even going to piece those things together. Mm -hmm. And even if you do piece those things together, like it's okay. It's okay for stories to be retold with, with different elements. Like that's the premise of the Wheel of Time series. It's like, yeah, time goes through a loop. And you, these people are taking all these stories again. That's the premise of Battlestar Galactica. They say it. The sacred yep. scrolls tell us that all this has happened before and all of it shall happen again. Mm -hmm. Even things like Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. That's like, it's just the story. That's this sort of thing. And to simplify it, I, I mentioned this in, in Stay Alive, I think. 
There are two, there are people who say that there are only two stories. A hero goes on a journey and a stranger comes to town. Really, those are just the same story from two different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's okay if something, if you, it makes people realize that this is a this again. Heck, one of the things I talk about in Stay Alive is, which is a horror thing, one of the fun things about horror is there are so many sequels. There's all these Saw sequels. There's, you know, Friday the 13th sequels. You can run a horror game where it's like, yes, you guys are up against Freddy Krueger and all the previous Friday the 13th movies, or sorry, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies happened. What's going to happen with you guys? Yeah. Are you going to get away? Are you going to defeat him? Like, have your characters seen the earlier movies? And you're like, this can't be happening. That was just a movie. <laughs> Fun twists to make it cool for your players. Okay, so random sidebar, because now I've identified another Wheel of Time fan. Um, what's your self-insert into Wheel of Time? Who would you be if you were in Randland? You no, know, honestly, I haven't. Back when Walden Books was a thing, I did my monthly trip to Walden Books and I bought some other fantasy books, and they were having a promotion, which was the first half of the first Wheel of Time book. And I read <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I was like, in chapter one, I'm like, oh, clearly this guy is not his son and this other thing, blah, blah, blah. And then they spent the rest of the half of the book not getting around to that. I'm like, know where you're going, man. Just get there. <laughs> so <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't actually okay. read any of the rest of Will of Time. I've read the backs of all the books, and I, could, I, <laughs> I don't want to make fun of them because it's kind of funny if you read the backs in, in a row. Like, I'm, I'm in the bookstore going, I really should read this sometime. Mm-hmm. The, the, like, the summary of the first book is, Rand, wondering if he's a dragon, fights off the, the minions of the big bad evil guy. Second book, Rand, wondering if he's a dragon, fights off the minions of the next big <laughs> bad evil guy. Mm-hmm, book, mm-hmm. Rand, still wondering if he's the dragon, fights off the minions of the big, big bad guy. Fourth book, <laughs> Rand, now knowing that he's a dragon, but wondering if he's insane, fighting the big bad evil guy. So it's just like, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. Get that. So um, my, my friend and colleague, Charles uh, Ryan, worked on the Wheel of Time RPG that Wizards of the Coast published. Um, I, I haven't read it. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. There are weird holes you have, in, my, in my experience. You have an Amazon Prime show coming that you can watch if you don't there get around go. to the books. That probably would be much more available for my schedule. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of books, and they're big. Um, okay, so next question. What do you think are the drawbacks of the Cypher system? Interesting. Ooh. One off the top of my head is it doesn't handle player versus player very well Mm -hmm. uh, because players don't have levels. They have tiers and the whole system is designed so that players and NPCs don't work the same. Um, So if you're in a situation where two players are acting against each other, it gets kind of weird. Like, are we rolling off against each other? Um, That's actually something I want to talk to Monty about because one of the tropes of superheroes is some new superhero enters the fray and the other heroes think that they're a villain because of the circumstances Mm -hmm. and they end up fighting. Or you have something like Secret Wars where all these guys are fighting against all these other people. Um, So I think more detailed explanation of how to handle player versus player stuff uh, would be useful. I think that... Your focus kind of locks you into a set of powers and you might not like, you might like 75% of those abilities, not the other 25%. And now that you have the, the choice at uh, tier three and tier five, I think we gave you a bit more variety there, but 
least in terms of what my players are doing in the Cypher system. Uh, we've got a guy who's focused his moves like a cat, but now that we're in Tallis and there's guns, he's like, oh, I'm really liking all this gun stuff. There's not a lot of gun stuff and moves like a cat. So I'm just letting him buy into abilities from Cypher system rulebook, regardless of what focus they're from. Um, and right. that might make characters a little more powerful, but I think if you let everybody buy into whatever everything is doing, I think that's okay. Um, but some people might be hesitant to do that. And so even though the new CSR tells people it's okay to build the new focus, some people might not want to jump in with both feet and say, pick any ability that's appropriate for your team. Right. So I think those are two easy go-tos of how we could do this better the Cyber System. And I guess another cool. one might be that Cyber System characters start out as really competent. So it's hard to be like the mm -hmm. first edition d and I'm a first level wizard, I'm barely an apprentice, or I'm a farm boy who finished shoveling manure and now I've got my dad's, you know, old spear from the war and you're just starting out. Um, Cypher system yeah. characters are more competent than that. So I got to scale them down a bit. Hmm. Cool. Very interesting answers. Thank you. Okay. We got five more. You still being okay. good for time? Awesome. Uh, when Numenera launched, it had a character creator app. And now we have companies like Fandom and Roll20 who are handling all of this like secondary licensed purchases and campaigns and source books and all of that stuff. Um, do you think that that's something your company might move towards? Partnering with somebody who might handle an online digital tool set like that? We get asked about that a lot. Hmm. And I know that... Uh... Charles is talking to Roll20 um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance to that. It's like, how much do we want them to be responsible for? Do we want to say, here, take all these mm -hmm. things, or is it on a per book basis? I mean, there's there's a lot of space, and they, from what I can tell, they're very flexible in terms of what they're they're offering and what we could meet in the middle on. Um, I, I think I would be very surprised if we did not have some sort of digital tool licensing happen in the future. Given how weird the world is right now, I'm not sure when that might be. I mean, I've been at MCG for four years now, and I keep saying, well, we should do something at Roll20. We should do something at Roll20 or another platform like that. <laughs> um, but Charles is so busy doing a lot of other things. We're a small company, and it means that everybody wears a lot of hats. Yeah. So the timing of that, we'll see. Yeah, fair. Uh, what considerations go into developing a completely new game? That's a really wide question. Yeah, that is a really wide question. I mean, <laughs> I think first of all is like, what sort of game mechanics do you want it to have? Mm -hmm. How similar is it to an existing game or, or game mechanic that we have? Like Invisible Sun was originally going to be a Cypher system game. Oh, and then as Monty worked on it, yeah, as Monty worked on it, he's like, you know, I could make it a Cypher System game, but I'm going to be doing enough weird additions to it that I could just make it its own game and then allow it to be its own thing. Um, mm -hmm. So in the same way that you could take D&D &D and reskin it to something, it's like a modern game, or how Pathfinder has Pathfinder and then they have Starfinder. Like yeah. Starfinder could have just been, we're going to do Pathfinder in space, but it is a, its own thing. Um, I think it's, that's really a question of, can the rules as written let us tell the stories that we want to tell for this game setting? 
Um, you can do just about any game in just about any setting, but there are going to be some that fit better. And so whether mm-hmm. you're adapting existing rules or starting from scratch, that's kind of like your core, your core question there. Um, I think a lot of it is just about whether you want to have it be a game who's for people who are really into gaming or a game that's meant to be more casual and open to, to new people. Um, we have a, a children's game called No Thank You Evil uh, that mm-hmm. is specifically written for... Nice, good. <laughs> um, it's also a, a very slimmed down cipher system. Like I've done demos of No Thank You Evil before and I told people, now that you've played this, you can play the cipher system. Actually, I want to go and like just do a one-shot game where I take people who've never played the cipher system before and just do a I want to call it no thank you space demons and just have it be <laughs> like a game for adults where you're, you're fighting monsters and blah, blah, blah. Just using the no thank you evil rules. So game. When I was interacting, I used to be the community theater and every week or every a couple of weeks, there was a group of parents who would come to the mall and they drop their kids off to see a kid's movie. And then they would check out no thank you evil from their game library and just sit there and play no thank you evil for two hours and then go pick up their kids. And so we had a group of yeah, adults just- who were like, you know what? We don't want to get into like all the deep level math stuff about like you just want to sit down and role play and have fun we're gonna play some of the thank you evil and i don't even think they played in story they may have just gone off in some little fantasy tangent um yeah so those those are the considerations it's really because it's really the game needs to serve the story that you're telling. and if the mm-hmm. game is doing weird things then ditch those rules <laughs> i mean that's that's the short version of a very very long answer yeah it's a very complex It'd be question. its own podcast a completely separate interview um what is one nice thing that you would say about each edition of D &D that you have played oh cool um uh, we'll we'll start with basic i played basic and expert that was fun easy to get into it's definitely very engaging for my my 10 11 year old self um yeah a lot of a lot of good heart from the old days playing basic (laughs) D D. Uh, first edition D and loved how Gary Gygax had, you know, this crazy highfalutin language that was very convoluted and, and flowery based on all the books that he's read from back in the day. Um, I loved how the first edition DMG had artifacts and relics where you could fill in your own powers and they just maybe go, Oh, I can design my own stuff. I can make this unique for my own game. I thought that was very GM empowering. Um, second edition, I liked how it consolidated a lot of the the diaspora of source books on spells and magic items. Like our group kept playing first edition, but we used the second edition player's handbook because it had all the spells in one convenient mm. place. Um, I was about to go off on a tangent about how wonky second edition was, but I won't do that. Um, second edition was very interesting that way. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I guess in terms of for a GM, it might be kind of easy if you're willing to wing it second edition was very winging it friendly. Hmm. Third edition. Uh, wow. That was the first edition that I actually had an involvement in, in designing for. I designed some of the monsters for the third edition monster manual. I was you know there for all the design decisions. No, well, not for all, but third edition design team was very open about what they were discussing and they were open to, to questions and stuff. And so my, my designer brain and my designer heart are like, Oh, thank you for letting me be part of that. Um, I really liked how all the mechanical bits of third edition fit together. Um, I think they fit together pretty well. Obviously it was easy to go and exploit some things here and there, but the fact that you could say, I have a difficulty, you make a role. It meant that designing for third edition was very easy and very comfortable. Uh, And 
it let, let us do some really, really cool stuff. And like it wasn't, if it wasn't for third edition D and D rule set, I don't think we would have had as much fun doing the third edition version of the Forgotten Realms, which is a book that I am probably the most proud of my own design in. Uh, won an Origins Award. I don't normally make a big deal of awards, but like, mm-hmm. ooh, I won an Origins Award for that book. Yeah. Um, like, at the time, there's this huge Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms rivalry, and I had Greyhawks fans say, right, this book makes you want to play Forgotten Realms. I'm like, okay. That's, that's just- <laughs> you know, I can't really say anything positive about 4th edition just because I never played it. Like, I, mm. I flipped through the player's handbook, and, and that was about it. I was uh, working on video games at the time and then on Pathfinder. And so I just didn't really have time to go and learn an entirely new rule set. I know a lot of people, it, it's like a love it or hate it sort of thing. Like you either love for the edition yeah. or you hate it. And I am all for people who love a particular game playing that game. If that's the game you want to play and you love it, that's great. Cause I just want people to game and have fun. Um, so yeah. Uh, fifth edition. I really like how they decoupled uh, NPC stats from PC stats. So you can, you no longer have to say, this character is an assassin, so he has five levels of rogue, two levels of fighter, and three levels in the assassin class. You can be like, no, this is an assassin. He's got these stats. And I can make mm-hmm. a monster and say, this bugbear has the assassinate ability of the assassin NPC. You can just stick those things together. Right. You don't have to yeah, say, yeah. well, he's got two levels in this class and a custom template <laughs> to this. You can just say, the monster is what it needs to have, which I think is wonderful. And it made designing Arcana of the Ancients and uh, Talus a lot easier. Hmm. Cool. Thank you. Very interesting oh. perspective. Um, so, what types of characters do you prefer to play? Well, growing up, it was always wizards, 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 because I was just all in on the idea of, I want to live in a fantasy world, because fantasy does stuff, magic, magic does stuff that you can't accomplish in the real world. Um, if I wasn't playing a wizard, like if the campaign was a low magic sort of thing, then I would generally play a fighter. Um, but I have broken myself out of that mold enough that, uh, like in the Talos game, my main character started out as a rogue. He was going to be a swashbuckler. So he was mm-hmm. a rogue for a lot of skills and then took a level as a fighter to be better at fighting and ended up multiclassing into cleric uh, because we all got captured and our cleric was unconscious. And so I decided to go enough XP to level up. I chose a level of cleric so I could heal the cleric to wakefulness and go around from there. Um, who was your, uh, who was your God for sure? She was, uh, Mirith. No, no, not Mirith. Miresh, the goddess of laughter. Hmm. It was very much like, ha ha villains. Da, 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 <laughs> sort of thing. Um, so him serving the goddess of laughter, uh, was very appropriate. Um, so yeah, like, I guess I've covered all four bases there. Um, there <laughs> yeah. was one, there's one high-level playtest for Pathfinder Organized Play where they were going to do their very first high-level OP adventure for 12-level characters. And Eric Mona, the, uh, the author of this adventure, who was the publisher at Paizo, said, all right, I want the designers and developers of Pathfinder to playtest this adventure because if anybody's going to be able to break this, it's going to be you. <laughs> and I said, all right. He said, you're going to make 12 level characters. And I looked at the GP value that we had available for us. And I built a character that I called Invisible Sinbad because I had like a, an Arabic version sort of guy miniature to use. And uh, he made him a 12 level cleric. His entire focus was healing. He had a ring of invisibility. And I just walked around invisible the entire game going, ah, 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 I heal you. Ha, 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 I heal you. 
and everybody was like at max health the entire time. The only reason one character died was because he was out of range. Like I had a, a was out of range of my healing. I could move and not quite get to him and heal him mm. time. But everybody else was like totally fine. And the, the, the GM again, Eric was just like, I can't believe that I trying to throw this deadly, deadly, deadly dungeon <laughs> at all these people. And you're just healing them up to full over and over again. I'm like, I'm good at my job. Okay. I'm good at designing yeah. this character and I'm good at being a cleric. <laughs> oh, you know, I did, I did the same thing for James Jacobs's game. James ran a Sandpoint game for Pathfinder. And again, I played a cleric and I was going to be a cleric of uh, Gorm, who is the god of war. And I was going to be like the whole, oh, yes, I'm wearing full plate and I've got a great sword. And everybody else in the group played idiot players who like ran into danger. We had a barbarian who didn't wear armor. And so I ended up having to change, became the cleric who heals people in that <laughs> game. Like I, I had the weapon focus feat to be good with my sword. After fifth level, I did not make one single attack roll in that entire campaign. We got to 12th level. It's seven levels of not making attack rolls. I'm like, I'm a god, a priest of the god of war. Why am I not attacking things? Because you're all idiots. <laughs> yeah. I don't have short answers for anything. I'm sorry. That's all right. I am enjoying it. It is great. Uh, but this is, this is our last question. All right. Uh, do you have any design ideas that are... Uh, sitting on effectively the cutting room floor that you want to get into a game and you haven't had the opportunity yet. Oh yeah, there. So I have a list of things that I have thought about designing, and I I wrote them down when I started a Paizo just to say, hey, here's a bunch of stuff that I'm planning on doing that I might do on the side while I'm working here. I just want you to know that I've already thought of these things and I'm not like using company time or company ideas, and I've done zero of them. <laughs> Um, <laughs> they, they range from, Hey, it'd be really cool to do a source book about this or, um, a miniature. Like I did a, a mini campaign book called the new Argonauts, which is adventures in mythic heroic Greece. So you're playing scions of the various Greek gods and fighting like, this is the original Hydra. This is this and that. Um, I published that as a little 30, 32 page book. It's actually available for free. Now I made it free, uh, about a year ago, but I want to do a similar thing for, uh, the the fallen heroes uh, who are resurrected in Valhalla. Mm-hmm. So they're like, oh, we're heroes of Valhalla. And then Ragnarok happens. And so you're like fighting giants and eventually like fighting all this horrible stuff as Ragnarok is happening around you. Um, yeah, so many, so many ideas. Like the problem, is, the problem is not coming up with ideas. The problem is finding the time to write them down. Yeah. Because writing stuff down is my day job. Then I also like want to spend time with my girlfriend and watch TV and do vacations and blah, blah, blah. Like if there were another 24 hours in the day, I probably would have all of these things done, but mm-hmm. there's just not enough time today. Yeah. That ongoing challenge for creatives. Yeah. And burnout. You That'll know, you I don't here. really, ha- I don't really have that problem. No? Like, I've never had writer's block. I sometimes don't have the motivation to write. Cause it's like, or like right now I'm, I'm in a basement. I moved in with my girlfriend and the, the basement is my office and I'm in the process of finishing this basement. So I like, I put up a partition wall and I built a door and I'm going to finish the ceiling. So it's all it's like, that is also a distraction from being able to do side <laughs> pressures. Cause if I'm doing eight hours a week and finishing this basement every week, that's eight hours that I'm not you know, writing some yeah. other book on the side, but you know what it's, I consider myself a Jack of all trades. I learned a little bit of this, this and that I like to cook. Uh, my girlfriend and I took a glass blowing class last year uh, I paint miniatures, I sculpt stuff. So eventually I just need to live to a hundred and I'll get it all done. 
All right. Well, it's been really, really wonderful speaking with you today, Sean. Thank you, Merrick. I appreciate you having me on your show. Yeah, I really appreciate you, you know, putting yourself out there and making yourself available to people who want to know a little bit more about this. And well, if you have a situation where you got, you know, a topic that you think I'd be good to talk about, just let me know. Great. Thank you. And yeah, I, I guess before we sign off, any last thing you want to say uh, about any of the three products we talked about today or the Kickstarter or? Sure. Uh, well, just to run down each of them, Godforsaken is on sale as of today in print and PDF. It's fantasy uh, stuff for the Cypher system. Uh, we are working on Talus. That'll be av- uh, available early next year. And then we have the Here's the Cypher System Kickstarter for Claim the Sky, First Responders, and the Origins, which is going on right now. Uh, even if you're not into the Cypher System, I'm sure that this book uh, will have something useful to you. Uh, also check out Stay Alive, my horror book. And you know what? Even if you just like dice, we got dice available for this Kickstarter. So check it out. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Merrick. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Massive Damage Adventures. We do a different one-shot every month, and I hope you check out our next one. Please rate and subscribe and follow us on Twitter at SkyhammerK and on Instagram at SkyhammerPress. If you want some outtakes, keep listening after I stop talking. Um, and... I wonder what my and was. <laughs> Edit that out. Yeah, exactly. I'll just cut this part. Um... You know what? And it was, I swear it was going to be good. It's gone forever, though. Um, so, oh, I got it. We'll cut in right here where it's amazing how on top of this and smart I was. Um,